Hey, parents and little adventurers. Ever wondered where hot dogs come from? Dive into a world of wonder with the new children's book about cellular agriculture. Cellular agriculture? What's that? It's the science behind tomorrow's foods. Discover the journey of a family barbecue in a way that's fun, educational, and downright tasty. Grab your copy of Where Do Hot Dogs Come From? on Amazon today. Yum! The future sounds so delicious. Curious for more? Visit www.hotdog.fyi. Happy reading! Thanks for tuning in to the Cultured Meat and Future Food Podcast. We're excited to have Thomas King of Food Frontier on today's episode. Before we get started, I want to mention the Cultured Meat Symposium, taking place in downtown San Francisco on November 1st. The 2018 event will follow the themes of impact, future, and flavor. We'll be featuring speakers from New Age Meats, Just, Better Meat Co., Creator, Good Food Institute, and New Crop Capital. Sign up today using the code CMSPODCAST for a special discount at www.cms18.com. Thomas King is a social entrepreneur and international speaker who was named the Young Australian of the Year in 2015. At age 13, Thomas founded the world's highest viewed website of unsustainable palm oil production. He has since represented Australia in an IMAX climate change film in the Arctic, helping direct a campaign that raised $1.6 million to alleviate poverty in Cambodia and led other environmental animal welfare, and global development projects across five continents. After realizing that industrial animal agriculture is central to all these issues, Thomas founded Food Frontier to grow the development and supply of plant-based and cell-based meat across the Asia-Pacific region, starting with Australia and New Zealand. Food Frontier works across sectors to support food producers and outlets, entrepreneurs, scientists, government, and consumers. Thomas, I'd like to welcome you to the Cultured Meat and Future Food Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Alex. It's a pleasure. Thomas, tell us a little bit about your background and why you started Food Frontier. Yeah, so my journey began in my early teens. I was your average kid from Melbourne, Australia. I had lots of different pets, had an interest in the natural world, but that translated into, I guess, activism. When I was 13 years old, I learned about deforestation in Southeast Asia and decided to launch a website to try and educate people about the issue. It started as something that I would share with friends and family, and I was that kid at Christmas that wouldn't shut up about world issues. And then it picked off and went global and became this huge platform about this issue. And that was kind of my entry into the social impact space. And as it happens with these things, I kind of broadened my horizons from there and became involved with other related issues and ended up working on projects relating to climate change and poverty alleviation and animal protection. And of course, realized over that time that our food system was underpinning every single issue that I'd ever worked to address. I figured from a impact standpoint, that's where I should be investing my energy, addressing our broken food system. And of course, industrial animal agriculture is central to all of that. 
I kind of became interested in, in the food technology space. The more I started to learn about these entrepreneurs and food scientists who were you know, recreating meat, whether it be from plants or using cell culturing technologies. That's long story short, and I can go into more detail about how it all came about, but that's why I started Food Frontier. You were 13 when you started that first website. Yeah. I had a friend who introduced me to this DIY website builder, and the first website was absolutely terrible. Like, thank God it was redeveloped by some professionals in the years following. But uh, yeah, I started young, very naive, but very passionate. And uh, I learned a lot at an early age. I guess from a dietary standpoint, are you plant-based? I am, yeah. It was kind of an inevitable pathway for me. I mean, I cared about animals. I cared about the natural world. And I kind of found myself in a situation where I was campaigning to protect animals in Asia and forests in Asia, yet I hadn't put a single thought into the animals on my plate back home and the damage that that was doing. I gradually transitioned to a plant-based diet over the years. And you did quite a bit of traveling a couple of years back. Was that part of this initiative that you had started? Yeah, it started out with this. This particular campaign. So I was lucky to go to Borneo several times and work on some projects there. As I said, I ended up taking opportunities to be involved with different organizations focused on different causes over about a, a six, seven year period and traveled to about five continents over that time. So I was lucky enough to go to Greenland, the Arctic, represent Australian youth on a climate change expedition, a film that was shown at the COP21 climate summit in Paris. I've been to South Africa, for a conservation initiative, Cambodia, to direct a film crew to film a commercial for a poverty alleviation campaign in Australia called Live Below the Line, peer-to-peer -peer fundraising campaign. Yeah, it was quite a journey and I deliberately wanted to gain experience in these different areas and look, all of these issues, causes that I care deeply about, but it was the realization that a lot of this links back to our food system. I mean, as many of your listeners will know, the world's leading cause of global deforestation and biodiversity loss is, is livestock. It drives up the premium for grain in countries where it's a key source of sustenance, which keeps people entrenched in the poverty cycle because uh, we're feeding so much food to farmed animals. It contributes more to greenhouse gas emissions in the world's entire transportation sector. And of course, is the world's leading cause of animal suffering. You know, we have 70 billion land animals in intensive farming. Over the years, started to get involved in the effective altruism community. I think it's a framework that really makes sense to me to figure out how as individuals we can have the greatest impact towards the most important causes with the time and talents and resources that we have. And this is where I ended up. When we're talking about nonprofits specifically, and Food Frontier is like a registered nonprofit in Australia, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. I guess, does it contain that within Australia? Or can you also kind of do things outside of Australia as well? Yes, yeah, so the way it all kind of came about, I was in the States two, two and a half years ago, speaking at an event called Nexus in New York. And on that same trip, I set up meetings with some of these food companies that I'd only read about until then, you know, Just and Memphis Meats and all of those folks on the West Coast and met with them before I left. And that was really my first opportunity to learn at a deeper level about the technology and try some of the food and meet the founders and was taken on tours of the facilities and learn about the investment that these companies have received and just became hugely excited by the potential for impact and the momentum here in the States. I left, returned to Australia feeling hugely buzzed, only to realize that there is next to nothing happening in this space 
in our entire region. So not only Australia, but if you look at the Asia Pacific as a whole, there's very little happening, or, or at least at that point, whether it be in the plant-based space or whether it be cellular agriculture. And the Asia Pacific is home to 60% of the world's population. Meat consumption is rapidly rising across much of that region due to rising affluence, Asian middle-class populations. Having grown up in Australia, I realized that we're a country that has a certain level of influence within the food sector in our region alongside our neighbors in New Zealand. Both countries are kind of the Western base in the region and are epicenters for food research and development and production and export. Brand as a country is has a lot of prestige in Asian markets. So we have the perception of being clean, green, you know, quality, safe, trusted food suppliers. And for that reason, products from Australia and New Zealand are highly sought after across Asia. One example of this is in Australia, we have 200,000 Daigo. And Daigo are personal Chinese shoppers who, on behalf of their middle class clients in mainland China, will clear shelves of particular food products and ship them to those clients in China who pay a considerable premium for those goods for the mere fact that they're from Australia or New Zealand. There's this huge demand for our product. There's that perception. There's huge industries, of course, for food and agriculture and the infrastructure that comes with that. I also realize we have exceptional R&D sectors that lend themselves very well to both these spaces. I mean, if you're talking about cellular agriculture, a city like Melbourne that I'm from is a, is a global hotspot for regenerative medicine and tissue engineering capabilities. And yet nothing is being done yet in producing meat from stem cells. I kind of saw all these ingredients and the potential for Australia and New Zealand to lead our region in this space and become the next hub for this kind of you know, new protein innovation. And Food Frontier came about realizing that the quickest way to get movement happening was to have a middle body that could work across the system with various stakeholders to help catalyze that change. And focusing initially on Australia and New Zealand, but with an Asia-Pacific perspective, knowing that shifting, rather diversifying our food industries there will have ripple effects, and, and at least that's our aim, across the broader APAC region. So we are an Australian nonprofit. We do some consulting work, but we're reliant mostly on philanthropy, and we'll soon be formally branching out to New Zealand as well. Aside from cellular agriculture and cell-based meats, what are some really food technologies that you and your team are excited about? Yeah. So as I said, we focus both on plant proteins and cellular agriculture. We're really excited about the potential to produce people's favorite foods using plants. There's obviously been some brilliant examples of that entering the market in recent years. And we don't have a lot of those products yet in our region. And that's part of what we do at Food Frontier. We kind of look at the food system as it relates to this space in three parts, being development, supply and consumption. And we speak about activating development, accelerating supply, and advocating consumption. So that activation piece is saying, how can we stimulate new innovation locally? How can we support scientists and entrepreneurs and investors and government in creating new products, new companies, new IP that will add value to the global marketplace? Accelerating supply is saying, how can we take what already exists, whether it be you know, from America or Europe or locally, and expand its availability within our region? And then advocating consumption is basically, how do we increase the adoption of these options amongst consumers and the outlets that supply them? And we have a really great outreach program on that front. And so with development, yeah, we speak to entrepreneurs about the fact that, I mean, it's, it's fantastic having companies like Impossible Foods, for example, showing what's possible in terms of harnessing 
enhancing the power of plants to create burgers and sausages and meatballs that are as delicious and nutritious as what we're used to, but without having to raise animals to do that. But really, this space is just in its infancy. So we really encourage people to continue to innovate on that front and realize that we haven't explored the vast majority of the plant kingdom for these kinds of applications. So the potential for innovation is still huge in the plant-based arena. So yeah, we were as excited about plant-based as we are cellular. I'm a big fan of something that Pat Brown says, and that's that the Impossible Burger will just get better over time. And he makes the comparison that right now you might think that the Impossible Burger tastes like beef burger, but we're only going to get better. And so he has the hopes to kind of go past that from a taste and experience standpoint. Yeah. What are some of your favorites? Are you a Impossible Burger guy or are you a Beyond Meat Burger guy? <laughs> uh, don't do this to me, Alex. <laughs> Look, I enjoy both. I probably lean more towards Impossible Burger. Although I did just try the sausages, the new sausages from Beyond Meat, and I thought they were pretty damn impressive. Interestingly, tests done with plant-based products that are currently available, which, as you say, are, are only kind of the initial iteration of something that's only going to improve over time. And even then, if consumers aren't told that it's plant-based, it's very interesting to see what their experience is. So there was one company uh, that we're working with, Hungry Planet, and they did a, a bun test. So they basically brought in a, a focus group of American consumers, and they said, you know, here's five different buns. We've got them to rate the different qualities and at the end of the session they said oh and what did you think of the patties and people said oh yeah fantastic you know no no complaints and not one person realized that it wasn't conventional meat in plant-based patties whereas people are told that what they're eating before they put it in their mouth right. <laughs> is plant-based <laughs> or is vegan it's very interesting to see how that shift in perception and those preconceived ideas of it being an inferior product actually influence their experience. It's an interesting one. I think the conditions of people when they actually try it influences their experience to a certain degree. Shifting back to kind of markets and regions, right. from your experience, how are business markets different in Australia versus the rest of the world? And I really ask this question to pry into whether you think that one particular food technology would be successful in one region, but not the other. Yeah, this is a really good question. And I think it's something that people who are part of this movement in countries outside of Northern America need to think about. What are the unique challenges and opportunities for your country in this space? Because not everywhere is going to take the same pathway that the US has. And I think different regions have different value propositions. And this is something that we have been gaining a deeper understanding of for Australia and New Zealand over the last 18 months, as we've had conversations with hundreds of experts and done market research. And I think that there are a few key strengths. I think there are a few key considerations as well. So Australia and New Zealand are obviously, I mean, aside from Asia, we are isolated from the rest of the world. So we're far away. Australia is a big country. Most of our capital cities are around the coast. And so from a distribution standpoint, that needs to be a consideration. We have, as I said earlier, exceptional research and development capabilities. And so the potential for us to innovate both in the plant-based arena and cellular agriculture, I think is, is huge. We're looking at how that could be or what role we could play in structuring that to be most effective. Because as with a lot of countries, research that is just university-based and universities are where a lot of that intellectual capital lies, 
you know, difficult. It takes longer or it just doesn't become commercialized, the findings. Figuring out how we can best structure that, whether that's a, an incubator or accelerator model, whether that's commercial partnerships with a university, there's various different ways it can be done, I think is, is important to get right. We have entrepreneurs already who are starting to support, who are very hungry to enter this space. But I also recognize that, you know, we don't have a Silicon Valley. So I don't think we're going to be pushing out, we're not going to be a, a startup machine, pushing out the level of um, companies that some like the States does. I think the biggest thing above anything else for Australia or New Zealand is being a base for the region and a gateway into neighboring Asian markets. This is something that companies internationally use Australia and New Zealand for, and not, and not just in food. They either manufacture or develop IP and export you know, IP for those reasons that I spoke to earlier in terms of infrastructure and reputation and just close geographic placement. I mean, we have you know, more than half the world's population sitting just north of us. And a country like Australia offers a, a secure and safe base, particularly from an IP standpoint, and the infrastructure that's necessary, the free trade agreements, you know, you name it. So I think something that people in this space should think about when they're thinking about the Asia Pacific, I mean, by all means, if it makes sense to establish locally in Asian markets, then go for it. But when you're talking about Asian consumers, particularly you know, Chinese middle class, we're talking about consumers who choose very aspirationally. And yes, they are still driven by things like taste, price, convenience, like in the West, but factors like food safety rank just as high. And this is the reason why middle class Chinese consumer, you probably don't eat food that's grown in China. It's all imported. And if you can say it's imported from particular countries, Australia and New Zealand being at the top of that list, it's a status thing. It's a prestige thing. For a plant-based company, for example, to manufacture in Australia, where they have that security and peace of mind and reliable supply of quality raw ingredients, and then to export into neighboring markets with the Australian-made brand and the weight that that holds, that could be, for some companies, strategic move to position their products at a higher level in the market and ensure that they're seen as a better, cleaner, greener option, which I think is important when we're thinking about these markets that are driven by aspiration. We touched upon academia and IP a little bit. What are your thoughts on really open-sourced research in the cellular agriculture world? I think the idea of open source research is fantastic, and I'm a big supporter of collaborative efforts and moving forward together, particularly in this phase of the journey. The practicalities around open source research are another thing. Of course, it, with any research and development of IP, a lot of it comes down to who's funding it. For open source, you need somebody who's willing to put money behind it, knowing that something that's going to be opened up to anyone and everyone. And I think that there are those individuals exist who understand the bigger picture vision and the fact that there is incredible urgency to solve this, this protein challenge we're facing as a globe. And knowing that food production is estimated to need to increase 70% within 30 years, just terrifying. And so people that recognize that and that have the resources to facilitate facilitate more research. And if that can be open sourced, that's fantastic. But I think it's it can be more difficult than what it might seem on the surface. As I said earlier, a lot of the intellectual capital in terms of tissue engineering and stem cell biology, regenerative medicine lies within universities, at least in a country like Australia. And again, if they can't get funding to do research that's open source, then it needs to be structured differently. What advice do you have for the entrepreneurs out there that are interested in starting a company, uh, whether they're mission-driven or not? 
I would say that building as much knowledge as you can and as many relationships as you can in the field that you're interested in is crucial. And from that process, identifying where the white space exists, where are there the gaps in the market? Where is there the greatest opportunities from a business standpoint? But if they're mission aligned opportunities from an impact standpoint to understand the kind of impact you want to have, whether that's reducing animal suffering and or environmental impact and or improving human health and figuring out what particular product or business, it doesn't always have to be a product that you're bringing to market, you could champion one component of the supply chain is needed in order to achieve that impact. From there, I think it's an important to determine your strengths as an individual that you can bring to the table and to find the people who can fill the gaps, the areas that you don't consider your strengths and who can complement your skill set well. And having that kind of founding team that works as a well-oiled machine is important. I would say you're building the knowledge and relationships, identifying the gaps and where you can add value based on your strengths and then finding the right people you need to bring together to make it happen. Are there any particular resources that you would suggest in the clean meat space? So we work in partnership with GFI, the Good Food Institute, and they, of course, have their industry mind maps, both for plant-based and clean meat, which I would encourage anyone who's kind of new to the space to read through. They also have a new resource called their Startup Manual, which helps entrepreneurs navigate the process of launching a startup in this space. So I'm pretty sure that's on their website, gfi.org forward slash startup manual. I'd encourage people to head there. I took a look at that startup manual and it's very comprehensive and it's really, really awesome stuff what GFI is putting out. But that startup manual is, is actually a pretty important thing for new entrepreneurs, I would say. Absolutely. Yeah, it's uh, they come out with some excellent resources. I was just uh, on their team retreat for their international engagement team. We work in partnership with GFI and Nicole, who heads up their international engagement, kind of sees us as Asia Pacific or at least the Australian New Zealand sort of of what they do. And, you know, they'll handball us uh, any opportunities that come up in that region and, and vice versa. And we kind of bounce off each other in that way. But uh, yeah, it's great to be able to look to what they're doing in the States and figure at what can be effectively replicated into other regions, but also where things need to be tailored, again, depending on those unique challenges and opportunities of different countries. So it was awesome to come together with their new directors for different uh, regions who are mostly embarking on the process that I've just undertaken of, of starting up a small team and organization to stimulate this work in a country that isn't the United States. And so it was awesome to have those conversations and share experiences. So we briefly mentioned Just, but what are some of the other startups that are in the space that you are most excited about? Uh, honestly, there's too many. I think that in the cellular agriculture space, there's probably at least 20, 25 startups now, most of whom I'm very excited about. There's at least that many companies in the next generation plant-based meat space. I'm excited about many companies. And as I said, I think this space is really just in its infancy. There's still so much room for more companies and more startups. But I would also encourage people who are wanting to enter this space to figure out whether they could bring their skill set and talents to an existing 
organizational company or whether they could start a venture that is solving a challenge that doesn't necessarily involve championing that entire supply chain. In the case of clean meat, of cell-based meat, you know, going from isolating cells all the way up to you know, manufacturing meat for the market, could there be one component of that process that they could champion? Of course, that comes with challenges and considerations and you need to understand who your clients are, who you can offer value to if you become a company that is licensing to other clean meat ventures. The same for the plant-based space. I mean, there are investors now who are looking to back the startup of protein isolation facilities that can add capacity for all the companies in this space. So I think that's an interesting angle as well. So you went to the MFA gala. Were there any big players in the space in attendance? Yeah, it was surreal looking around at the room at everyone who was there. There were plenty of investors who have backed ventures in this space, uh, various people from plant-based companies, from NGOs that are helping accelerate the space. Of course, there is celebrities, which I think kind of is expected for a, a gala in downtown LA. So it was fun to be able to hang out with people like Emily Deschanel and thank them for using their platform to advocate for uh, you know not only animal protection, but many of them have put their support and endorsement behind plant-based eating and or cellular agriculture. So it was a fantastic event, really, really inspiring and honored to have been there. Any insights or any comments on this recent terminology change to cell-based meat? I think if we're trying to achieve systemic change and we're trying to shift our food system as quickly as possible towards one that isn't reliant so incredibly heavily on animal-based agriculture, we need to bring people along and we need buy-in from existing industry leaders. And if that means making compromises, as Memphis Meats has done in coming to that name and partnering with the North American Meat Institute for the letter that they submitted to the American government, I think it's necessary. I think it's a positive thing. I do have thoughts about terminology from a consumer standpoint, but I believe the discussion at the moment is about what do we call this product during this phase, during the process of regulatory approval. And so if cell-based meat is the best possible option to get things moving, I'm cool with that. But my understanding is that the research that has been done up until now shows that it doesn't rank nearly as well from a consumer experience acceptance standpoint as a term like clean meat. I do understand the concerns around clean meat from a kind of industry perception standpoint, not wanting to alienate certain people. It is loaded, but I also think it is accurate (laughs) in that a meat that doesn't have fecal contamination and has a fraction of the environmental impact could be argued as cleaner. But I am confident that we can reach a place where industry are happy, where companies are happy, where regulators are happy, and where these options can be presented to consumers as for what they are. You can learn more about Thomas King on LinkedIn and learn more about Food Frontier by going to www.foodfrontier.org. Thomas, are there any last insights that you may have for our listeners today? I think we covered most of it, only that if anyone is interested in getting involved in our work or who wants to come visit Down Under, they should reach out to us. Thomas, thank you so much for being with us today and sharing your story and insight on the Cultured Meat and Future Food podcast. Thank you, Alex. I appreciate all the work you're doing to uh, spread the word. This is your host, Alex, and we look forward to being with you on our next episode.
Thanks for being a listener. Since we started the show, we've definitely learned a lot about cell-based meat, but also a lot about podcasting. We'd love to get your feedback, whether you have comments on the questions, the ads, audio quality, whatever it may be. Submit your feedback to futurefoodshow.com. Special thanks to all of our guests on the show, Julian Zvorsko for making the intro tune, Anita Brolux and Florian Schmidt for drafting the questions, Adrian Medea-Dipura and Cyrus Manuran for editing, Yuri Kleben for outreach, Nick Talrea for legal counsel, and most importantly, thank you for listening and spreading the word about cell-based meat and future food technologies.